नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारबुक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग टॉकिंग अबाउट अनदर बुक द बुक इज कॉल्ड पॉलिटिकल ट्राइबलिज्म इन अमेरिका हाउ हाइपर पार्टिसनशिप डम्स डाउन डेमोक्रेसी एंड हाउ टू फिक्स इट इट इज रिटन बाय टिमथी जे रेडमन टिमथी वेलकम थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक यू सो मच फॉर हैविंग मी इट्स अ इट्स अ ऑनर एंड अ प्लेजर so uh, this is your first time on the podcast uh, i'll request you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself first so that everybody gets acquainted with you sure um well as you mentioned my name's tim redmond and i uh, was born and live in buffalo new york so that uh, in the united states it's about most people are familiar like with new york city where buffalo is, is on the other side of new york state so i'm i'm about 6 and a half hours from new york city uh up, up north near the canadian border and toronto t- and yeah Niagara, near toronto yep and uh so lived here my entire life i uh, you know uh got into politics sort of when i was in high school and then i when i went on to college that's what i i majored in political science so i did my undergraduate in political science and then decided to pursue a masters when i was trying to I knew that I I loved the subject area I wasn't quite sure what I was going to end up doing with it and then uh while I was doing my masters uh, I I fell in love with it even more and then really thought that I would teach college uh that's sort of the direction that I was going in and then I after the masters I you know was continuing on that track and did my, was began working on my PhD and while I was doing that uh just hearing like a lot of stories about how hard it was to get a job um you know in in academia and how much moving you had to do and things of that nature but i i was teaching some classes um i did my doctorate at the university of buffalo and and while i was working on my uh dissertation i started teaching and just fell in love with it and then so i went into uh high school and was t- doing some high school teaching and fell in love with that so then i you know finished my doctorate and i teach uh in a high school and also a local university here at damon university and i do you know um history political science and then i started um i i wrote a i started writing a column for a local newspaper because i i was also always really interested in critical thinking and then where where critical thinking and politics come together where there's actually you know in politics there's often a lack of critical thinking So I just got to uh, say that. Yeah. So I um and just really fascinated in the, in these two worlds and I started writing a a bi-weekly column on just various issues or various studies and and there was a lot of really good feedback to that and then so I started writing some longer articles that got published in some magazines and there was positive feedback to that and so then I uh you know I had people telling me I should put a lot of these ideas into a book form and so that's uh what i decided to do and and this is my first book and it was uh you know it's a it's a long process it's it's a grueling process but it was also uh really rewarding and and uh, and it's given me the opportunity to have a lot of wonderful conversations including uh this one so i have to say the first thing when i read your book uh, uh i got reminded of the scout mindset by mm, julia yes So mm-hmm. Julia had come on the podcast too. I had a conversation with her, and uh, there like, there are few books when you read and you absolutely fall in love with. So so how I came to know about your book because I I am a regular listener of Michael Shermer's podcast. Okay. So when I heard uh, you on Shermer, 
I bought your book and I read it and I, I absolutely fell in love with the book. Uh, I, Thank I, you. So, so uh, just like I felt when I uh, when I read Julia's book, I was like, these are the kinds of things that need to be read. And where I come from, and maybe the you can appreciate this better. Like I was telling you offline, I have a history of doing political work. I've actually gone on the ground, you know, gotten my feet dirty, gone door to door, literally ringing bells in different buildings, meeting people, talking to them, and just telling them to go out to vote. And just looking at what they're doing and how they behave. We come from two different societies. I've seen voting percentages in the United States of America and Canada are abysmally low. Mm -hmm. People barely vote over there. I come from a country where like we mark Mumbai is the city I come from for having a voting percentage of 55 to 65 percent. That's mm. considered low in a city uh, mm. like Mumbai because wow. the rest of the country, like we have states in India where 85%, 90% people go out and vote. Everybody votes. Hmm. It's just a very normal thing in India. And it's not like Australia where you have a compulsory voting rule where everybody has to vote. Right. So I, I always found, like in the last Ontario provincial elections, if I remember correctly, only 33% of the residents of Ontario voted. And I remember landing in Canada last year, just after the elections were over and I was just talking to my wife at that time. I was like, you guys don't vote? Is that it's like, it's not a thing in this country? It, what, it was absolutely shocking. What do you attribute the high turnout to in, in India? Mm, a, I think Indians are just way more politically active. Mm. B, it's a lot to do the higher you rise in the financial ladder, the lesser you care about the results. Because if, if you're somebody who's financially well settled, that means you don't have to take bother about the basics of life. So you just start taking them from granted. I, I don't have any social science background, but this is what I understand from my interactions that eventually it falls down to, I don't care. Hmm. I don't need them kind of a thing. This is what I hmm. felt when I've met people in the West. They don't care. They're like, uh, the government has to give me this, 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 this. These are the things that matter to me. My life is fine. I'm not going to vote. And only the ultra uh, politically charged people in, the, in, in, in North America tend to vote. Uh, I would say the ideologues over there vote. The rest don't care. Hmm. Yeah, I think... It's, in, you know, usually voting um, in the States is associated with so, socioeconomic status. So the, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are um, to vote. And, and also the more educated you are, the more likely you are to vote. But there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, it, it's a difficult problem to get at because people have been trying to solve this for decades. And there's one of the, well, there's a couple points that I would make one of the, for a while, because we, we do not have automatic registration in the United States. Now it's not difficult to register to vote, but a lot of people don't, don't know that you have to register to vote. So some people might show up on election day and they might not be registered. And then they're, therefore they, they oftentimes, I guess it depends on the state, but they'll let you, they'll let you vote, but then they kind of hold your vote after they check your registration and then they can count it. But it, so I think some, some reformers thought, well, if we just register people to vote, then maybe more people will vote because the, the people turnout is higher among the people who are actually registered. 
So the idea was if we just register people, then maybe more people would vote. Um, you know, but but there's dueling arguments on on both sides of that, whether or not that really worked and whether, you know, if, if people can't be bothered to register, are they going to be bothered to vote? Um, but the other interesting thing that sort of is at at odds with the argument I'm trying to make in the book, and, and this is one of the dilemmas, is that our, our voter turnout, at least in presidential elections, has been higher as of late because the more the more partisan things become and the more hostile the politics be, our politics becomes, the more people are willing to vote or more likely to vote. And because it's, it's sort of seen as, as this epic clash between good and evil, you know, we, we have to win because that side is evil and our side is good. And before, maybe, you know, 40, 50 years ago, turnout was, was lower and there was all this concern about, oh my gosh, turnout is so low. What can, what can we do? to try to get people to turn out more. And there was a lot of talk about that the two parties were too similar and you know, we, we need a, a greater distinction between the two parties and we need things to be more partisan. So now we've gotten that and now people are like, uh-oh, uh, th this isn't good, uh, that we have all these people who are really active, but they're really angry. And so that's sort of been this dilemma of you know, do of getting more people to participate, but also making sure that it's participation that's not just based on anger, and that's a that's a tough problem. We we haven't been able to uh, figure that out over here. So now let's start with what I think is the core or the essence of your book, and and correct me if uh, if you think I've misunderstood it. Is the two theories of democracy that you talk about in the beginning, right? Right from the onset of the book, you talk about two competing ideas of how a democracy is supposed to be. Obviously, you start from the Greek philosophy, uh, Greek philosophical idea of what an ideal state is, where uh, obviously the Greeks did not consider everybody to be the part of the state. They only mm -hmm. believed the elite class. Uh, uh, they were more of an aristocracy, but the ideal you what you call the tribal form of democracy vis-a-vis -vis the folk form of democracy so could you maybe explain that sure so the i'll start with the 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 ideal democratic value or vision of how a democratic state is supposed to operate so this uh, a lot of political scientists call this the folk theory of democracy and it's generally the idea that uh, when when we start to become politically aware that we would go out and think about all the issues that are being discussed in a particular, you know, presidential election or political campaign, and that we would do our best to research those issues, and that when we're researching those issues to sort of figure out where we stand, ideally what we would do is we would look at the pros and cons of each issue, and then we would objectively evaluate uh, those issues and sort of see where where our point of view is, where do we think the best evidence lies. And then you would do that for all the major issues in a campaign. And then you'd sort of tally tally them up if you had, you know, 10 major issues and you sided with, you know, the Republican Party on seven of them and maybe the Democratic Party on three. Uh, and unless one of those three issues was really, really important to you, then you would probably say, well, I'm I guess I'm more aligned with the Republican Party here, and I guess I'll, I'll vote for their candidate. Uh, and you do so, I, I talk about in the book, doing so provisionally, like you don't, you wouldn't become really, really attached. Uh, and you would update 
your opinions and beliefs as new information came in and uh, maybe you you know saw things from a different perspective or maybe you saw that the party you were supporting in the past was sort of moving in a direction that you didn't like and then you'd be willing to vote for the other party um but what what tends to happen that that's really not how how things work um what tends to happen is we follow what i call the tribal theory of democracy which is we start with our party first and there's a, a wonderful discussion there to have like how do, how do we arrive at our party attachments but for the most part i i think it's a matter of socialization it's um you know our we are raised in a particular household there's if you're raised in a republican household you're likely going to be a republican if you're raised in a democratic household you're likely to be a democrat uh so family plays a big role or it might be your friends at school um you know your peers uh could be a spouse whenever you start to sort of become politically active and and the people that you're around it might be your social groups whatever but we have these you know tribes that that we belong to that we identify with and whatever that sort of tribe is then that sort of be, becomes our political party and so we have that party attachment and then that biases everything that that we do thereafter so when we go and look for information we're not going to be looking for information on both sides of the issue we're going to be looking in for, for information that supports our point of view and if we do come across opposing information will be really hypercritical about it and try to poke holes in that information. And then uh you know when we're we're evaluating information, I I share a lot of research in the book about how we do that in a biased manner. Uh and then we, you know, so we already start basically with our conclusion and the, okay, this is my party and then what's my party's position on this issue? Okay, well then that's my position. And then once we have our party and we have our issue positions, then we seek information, we evaluate information in a biased manner so we can sort of protect our party and protect our party's views. And so it really just it flips the democratic ideal on its head. Where rather than thinking our way to a conclusion, rather than letting our thinking lead to our party, our party really determines our thinking. And so that's the whole as you said that's the major premise of the book and then i i kind of break it down into those different steps of thinking and go through some of the research that talks about how our party can really hijack our whole thought process so i'll share a personal instance like i said i started political social activism i i never hide my political leaning on the podcast uh, just for the sake of transparency i believe i should be transparent enough and i also believe that uh people should not judge a human being by by merely their political affiliation my biggest grouse that that has been in my life is that i refuse to burn bridges with people just because they are from a mm. uh different political outfit i don't know what has gotten into human beings today's day and age that, that you know somebody would say i'm not going to date a democrat or a republican mm. like i was looking at numbers and 95% 90% of people say i'm only going to marry a democrat i'm only going to marry a republican and then you know an indian sitting here i was like you know you mock my country for having caste based endogamy i mean this is just another version of caste based endogamy it's just you have replaced the caste with a political tribe but maybe i'll share with you the story of how i reduced my political tribalism full disclosure i was 
everything that you have mentioned in this book hmm. everything um, i still have facets of those i i refuse to believe that we can overcome them in 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 app in in absolutism and you know we come zen like mm-hmm. buddha and and <laughs> just like this great practitioner who is away from everything if that was the case you should dump politics and stop voting that is the final stage <laughs> but what happened with me was because of my connections to north america i was studying in canada i have family in america i would constantly follow american politics mm. and for some odd reason i am not emotionally attached to either party in america or canada i i don't care right it's not my country like it or not there's no emotional attachment we at, at our core level i would be attached to indian politics not american mm-hmm. politics and i would look at what cnn says then i would listen to what fox news says and then after a while i was like oh so this is how they twist it oh this is how mm. this guy twists it and then i started looking at myself i was like this is how i do it <laughs> and that's when i was like oh my god i'm just like them <laughs> what am i doing <laughs> that's how it happened with me so i don't know if i'm right or wrong that's why i wanted to share this with you well that is uh That's a fascinating example because I think that detachment that you had from American politics it enabled it enabled you to to watch both sides and what both sides were saying and and you're sort of that you know as you said you're not emotionally invested in this so you don't feel threatened right uh so much of this is when you know our our political opinions or our party identification it it becomes part of us and so when it when it when someone takes a counter position we feel as though we personally are under attack and it's it's so hard to be objective in situations like that so you not being emotionally invested in this you could watch this play out and to you it was probably very obvious you know like wow okay this is as you said this is how they're twisting it this is how they're twisting it but for for people who are emotionally invested in it it's so hard to see that because we're we're blinded to it uh what was great was that you were able to take that experience and then turn it inward which is very difficult because a lot of people would have just been you know they would have said well the american politics is crazy you know they're they're oh they're they're so biased and why can't people see this and leave it at that and never look at yourself right so that you were able to do that and and make those connections was is really important and it's really hard to do that uh and i i've struggled with it as well um you know i really i had strong political opinions before i got into this research really and started digging into this i i think i was fortunate in the sense that you know my my family wasn't super political but but they they were always they were very civic minded so you know i i grew up always watching the news and they always voted but but it was never at our house there was never any you know bashing one party or the other this person is terrible and this person is great so um you know i i i wasn't really raised when i first started becoming aware of politics i you know i i wasn't leaning one way or the other and um you know and then i i i definitely uh started to de- to develop strong opinions but then when i got into you know the a lot of the critical thinking literature i really started to have the same realization that wow i i do i totally do this all the time i i don't i'm not looking for sources of information like if i come upon something 
I really started to realize like when a new issue crops up and almost instantaneously, I would have an opinion on it, even though I never really looked into it. And I'm like, how do, how do I have th these strong feelings? Well, because I read something in the articles that I was reading and this is what people were on, you know, on the side, on my side were taking. And so I'm like, okay, that that's what I believe. And it took a while to kind of see that and break out of that. And, um, and it's still, it's a, for me, it's a, a daily struggle. I mean, I'm a lot better at it now, but I still catch myself all the time having to say, okay, make sure now you read a position on the other side. Uh, and that, you know, I, I did share the one story on the, on the Michael Shermer show about uh, sharing, like when I was literally writing a part of the book about how to detect fake images online. And I literally writing that section of the book and I came upon one that I thought was hilarious and I sent it to friends and I'm like, oh my gosh, I never checked it. And then I, and then I fact checked it and found out it was a fake photo. And I, you know, I had to write back to them and say, Hey, please don't share this. It was a fake. I fell for this. I, I, and I felt so stupid. And, and here I am writing a book on this stuff and it's, you know, it's part, it, it's part of our nature to sort of be like this. And uh, we, we constantly, it, it is possible to push back against it. And, uh, and, you know, your story is proof of that. I've seen it in my own life and uh, I've seen it, you know, in other people's lives as well. It's just constant work. You, you have to keep at it and you have to keep asking yourself, am I, am I being fair here? Am I looking at this as objectively as I possibly can? Am I talking to other people with different points of view? And as you were saying earlier about you having friends and, and, you know, other parties and, uh, you know, being dismayed by the fact that people don't have spouses with, with differing points of view, that, that is critically important um, to have contact with people from other parties or other points of view that, because when you have that personal connection that prevents people from being caricatures. Right. And the members of the other party becoming stereotypes of what we think they are. And that's another major problem in American politics is we. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans really have this image in their head of who the average Democrat and average Republican is. And it's it's really not accurate. And that seems to suggest that they well, either they don't have many personal friends from the other party, you know, in their life or they just. When they think of Democrat and Republican, they immediately go to like, who's the president or this annoying member of Congress that you don't like. And they're sort of the stand in for who we think composes the other party. But the other parties are made up of millions of people and they're very diverse and they have different points of view and they come from all walks of life. And we just have to remind ourselves of that on, on a daily basis. I have this question in my head constantly about what's happening in America. Like I've been going back and forth to both America and Canada for now more than 20 years. Before that, I don't I have no idea, so I will not. But I see, I, I'm asking you, am I right or wrong in this observation of mine? I see a certain dilution of the role of old religions in 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 those societies for whatever reasons I, look my podcast is called the charvak podcast charvak is a materialistic school i am a disbeliever i'm very open about it like mm -hmm. i am uh, what in, in the west would be called an atheist or of that sort like 
I personally don't use the word for myself. So I still affiliate with the Hindu tag, but pretty much a disbeliever. But I see the fall of religion in those societies leading to a crisis of meaning of some sort. And, and then I see people trying to find meaning through politics, which is like the worst thing to find meaning in your life. I mean, all politics can give you is toxicity. Do you do you think that has any role to play? Because the numbers you share in the book, over a period of time, political tribalism in America is increasing it, on certain issues. While you also show that in most things, people actually uh, agree with each other. But still, the, the areas where they disagree with each other, that is having a disproportionately larger effect on their lives. And they are making it, let's say, if I did not like this cup and I like this thing. Now, if this cup would not make me, you know, break my friendship or bonds with someone mm. if they liked the cup and I disliked it. But today, this cup has become the, you know, the source of meaning in my life. Do you think that is happening in the United States of America? Hmm. Uh, it's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't know if... There, there is definitely, there's sort of been this trend as you, as you talked about a, a, a drop in at least people identifying with particular churches. Um, although that, you know, politically there's been a, a resurgence of evangelical Christians in terms of uh, being politically active. Uh, and so, but, you know, I don't know enough about it. Like, you know, some some stuff that I've read have been, has been saying that that's largely because they're feeling as though they're losing some influence. And so they're, you know, that it's uh, a way of them trying to exert more influence because they feel that religion might, might be coming less, I guess, central to people's lives in the United States. I don't know. I mean, we'll see how that, how that plays out in the long run. Um, you know, throughout U.S. history, it's it's always it's always been kind of a roller coaster. You know, we've had these uh, they, they call them the Great Awakenings and the Second Great Awakening, and some people argue there was a Third Great Awakening that there were sort of these lulls in, in religious fervor, and then there was this sort of comeback with religious fervor. Uh, so we'll we'll see um, how that plays out. But I I do think you know some um, a lot of political scientists that. Some were, were, you know, the, the term that I use is political tribalism and, and people had been using that term. And now some people have started using uh, political secularism because they said it's, it's, it almost has like a religious fervor that, that people have taken with, with politics where it's not just, you know, this is your view on taxes and this is my view on taxes and, and can we find some middle ground or compromise that, that it almost has this religious fervor where you know, I'm right and you're wrong and, you know, you're, you're believing in the wrong thing and I believe in the right thing. And, and there's no, and we, we do not compromise because we do not compromise on our deeply held religious values or whatever. And that, that's sort of how our, what our politics has become. It's, it's, it, it has that sort of religious zeal to it. And so I don't, I don't know um, about your point. If, if that, if politics is sort of filling that void now for people, uh, it's an interesting thought, but I, I don't, you know, have the expertise to, to speak on that.
but there definitely is a, uh, a people really have become very fervent in, in their politics. And, um, and it is almost like, you know, the wars between Catholics and Protestants or, you know, um, that has, has happened throughout history and this very strong hatred um, that exists, that seemingly exists between the two groups. Uh, so yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know, it's a, it's an interesting point, but I, I don't have the expertise on it to, to say, uh, anything more than that. Yeah. Because I, 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 I somehow get this feeling as an outside observer of these societies that, you know, it's almost a funny way people look for reasons to argue and bicker over mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, you know, they, they clearly have progressed so much financially in these societies that, mm -hmm. you know, the baseline is always almost taken care of. And then, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a very big critic of new atheism. I just think it just, it, it, it the, in some odd reason, I feel at times the excesses of new atheism. And it's funny coming from a person who's, kind of in that camp i don't know what what am i supposed to say but it uh, sometimes i feel it threw the baby out with the bathwater and then now people are like what do i do now i have nothing to do okay so so, 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 so i mean i don't go to any church i don't have any sunday gathering so what am i going to do so this is my new mm. tribe i guess uh, my tribe is uh, republicans mm. my tribe is uh, like it it clearly fails the test if you ask me because republicans are clearly religious or on average more religious than democrats but it definitely has done something inside the democratic party mm. I, I, because uh, i mean i have friends who are both republicans and democrats i i don't know I, I i find this whole idea of disliking someone because of their political pattern so nauseating in my head I was like, you reduce somebody to a one point. It is almost like saying he's a heathen or he, uh, right. you know, right. it's so alien to my bone. But now I want to focus on something very specific in your book where you call critical thinking and politics. And you have four like blocks where you say the first one is don't think critically and vote, just vote policy. The second one you say is think critically and vote policy. Then the third one is don't think critically, vote party and think critically and vote party. Now, the part where you say is the first alternative, obviously, is oxymoronic. Um, I want to focus on the fourth one. Okay. Why is that problematic, according to you? Uh, well, the so the fourth one, think, thinking critically... And then voting for the party in spite of that, kind of, um, in a way. Okay, so the, the, the challenge with that would be like, and this doesn't necessarily happen that often, uh, but, but, it, but it does, um, where people, so I talk about, to me, I see there's, there's two challenges here. One what I, what I call sort of the cognitive responsibilities of citizenship is that, that we need to take the time to think through issues um, and do so objectively and sort of come, come to our own opinions. The other hurdle I think that people need to clear is what I call the psychosocial responsibilities of citizenship. And, and that's what sort of I'm, I'm getting it in that, that fourth box. So um, these would be people who 
they did the thinking about policy issues. So let's say that, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a Republican and let's say that I, you know, I, this, you know, say this standard part party line is maybe, maybe climate change isn't as serious as we think, whatever. And then I look into that issue and I come to the conclusion that, oh, wow, I, I really actually do think this is serious. I think we need to do something about it. So I've thought through this issue, but then I'm, and if that issue was really important to me and a motivating factor, but I would, I still go forward and I vote for the Republican party uh, with whom now I disagree on that issue. And that's problematic, I think, for a democratic society if enough people are doing this because they're not voting for their issue positions, right? So they're, they're people who have particular issue positions, but they're voting for a party that doesn't share those issue positions. And therefore, the, the, the public will is not being represented because you could have you know, a, a significant chunk of the electorate who believes you know, uh, that policy A is a good thing, but their party doesn't believe that part, you know, policy A is a good thing, but they're going to vote for that party anyway. So you have put a party into office that's not going to be pursuing a policy that you think is really a good policy. And, you know, the question is, well, you know, why would people do that? And it's because so much of our party identity, it's, it's not about the issues. It's, it's about, our social identity. It's about our tribe. It's about the groups with, with uh, we associate. And so if I'm a Republican and, and I come to believe through my research that climate change is a serious issue, but I don't, I don't want to sort of go public with that, right? I don't want to let my friends know. I don't want to let my family know because none of them agree with that. And therefore I might be ostracized or mocked or whatever. And uh, so people could, you know, always in the privacy of the voting booth, you know, you could always say, well, yeah, I'm a Republican. And of course I voted for the Republican, but you didn't. Um, but I think pe people tend not to do that because you have that cognitive dissonance. And so what people often do is they sort of talk their way out of it and they might say, well, yes, I think this issue is really important, but, you know, maybe, maybe there's this other issue that all of a sudden now they're going to rate as more important. Um, or, well, maybe I would vote for that party because I think this issue is important, but that other side's probably not going to do anything on that issue anyway, so I'm going to stay in my own party. We sort of talk our way, we make excuses or talk our way out of that because it is so hard for people when you're of one party to sort of switch and become members of the other party. And, you know, that is hard, hard for people to do, um, even, even when, you know, I think this, this was a lot with, in the United States with a lot of Republicans and Donald Trump was that he, uh, you know, he took a lot of issue positions that weren't at least, you know, recently traditionally Republican positions. And a lot of people, there, there were some people who, you know, were like, well, I'm, I'm not going to vote for him then. Uh, but there were a lot of other people who were like, well, yeah, I, I don't like, I don't agree with him on this, this, and this, and this, but I can't vote for that other side because they're evil. Um, or they're, they're going to be worse, you know? And I think part of this can be an issue with the American two-party system too. Like people don't have another option. And so it's 
there then it really is sort of seen as this choice either or choice and it's really hard for people it's like it's just a bridge that's too too far to cross for some people to go across and vote for the other party uh but um so i think some of that is maybe our party system but that's that's what happens in that category is is you have some people doing the thinking but they don't let that thinking change their vote now as i was reading this section so many things were going in my head as as someone who has experience of political campaigning in his country how how do people vote are there single issue voters are there multiple issue voters if there are multiple issue voters how do they weigh let's say if i vote on the basis of five issues right i have five issues that i vote on the party i support lives up to three and a half ish kind of a thing but they don't do these two things now how do i rationalize that position right how do i come up with a scenario of who do i vote for these are complex issues mm-hmm. is what i'm trying to say so when i was reading these four options i was struggling to understand how to place people because like i have met people who would say so let's say the two big although india is not like america india is actually a multi party democracy where uh, there are so many political outfits unlike america but let's say you have a congress bjp just for the largest issue now i know people who just vote for bjp is because they were old congress voters and they are so disgruntled with congress and vice versa i know people who vote for the <coughs> i'm sorry congress because they are disgruntled with the bjp these are you know angry voters who are just voting on impulse but then there are people who you know who who look at issues and it eventually boils down to and where i struggled with this 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 framing was like we we make certain assumptions of how people choose to vote because it's very hard to crack that code as someone who has spent time with sophologists in india i mean just just through the sheer nature of my past work i i get to meet sophologists not one actually five six of them in india i i go back and forth with them and they also struggle with this like i always mm-hmm. ask them tell me what wh- what are the reasons they vote for and and off the record they'll be very honest and admit like we can't crack it we just don't understand how they think and why they think mm-hmm. a lot of them say oh no they just vote on impulse or sometimes on on many other things i've even uh, heard people saying that it's just a family thing they just keep voting for the same damn thing on the basis in india caste is a huge factor people just vote on the basis of their caste identity mm-hmm. because they don't realize there are caste based outfits in india now with new mm-hmm. meta or mega identities coming up the caste is diluting in some cases religion becomes that identity or in some cases religion plus a delivery of uh, you know social services like hmm. it's very hard for me to pin this model in my head and you know tell someone that hey you could be a critical thinker but you still vote for that party is not ideal i don't know i find it very hard to come to that conclusion maybe it is ideal for that person is what i'm trying to say hmm. Yeah, I well, I think again, I well, I guess it would be, you know, the the example that I was giving um the, some work by Dan Kahan who talks about this that 
what do we mean by, I guess, rationality or what, you know, pe people have different goals. And, uh, you know, speaking about the democratic ideal, people are supposed to vote based on issue positions and the issues, positions that you want to see turned into policy. But in reality, what's more important to people is their community. Um, and so again, you, you might think your way into a, you know, a certain conclusion, but you're still not, and that, that might put you with a given party, but you might not vote for that given party because, you know, you're, you're, you've been raised in the other party and all your friends are in that other party. And that, that, that's your identity. And that's not to say that's irrational in a sense, you know, uh, your, your community is more important. Um, and this is, you know, what he, he's sort of, he calls the, you know, it's the tragedy of the commons idea. If that too many people do that, however, we get policies that nobody really wants um, that, that can happen. But I, I think your larger point is a really good one. I, it, it is, it's impossible to just because everybody's different. Right. And so it's really impossible to crack that code and, and to figure out why someone's voting this way and why someone's voting that way. Uh, it's really, really hard because for some people, you know, it, it will be a, a single issue. I think there's a lot of people in the United States who, when you, when you sort of look at their issue positions, um, they, their economic issue positions sort of are more aligned with the democratic party, but they vote for the Republican party because they're pro-life and, and that is the, the one real driving force for their vote. And that is more important than, than all of these other issues. Uh, and so I think sometimes it could be single issue. Um, other times, I, I think that people, it's not about issues at all. And that's really the, the group that I'm focusing on in the book is the folks that I, I think we sort of anchor ourselves in a party and then and then from that point forward we just adopt whatever issue positions are that our party takes and there's a, a wonderful new book that that came out by these two brothers um Hiram Lewis and, and his brother and they uh and they talk about it's called the myth of left and right and it's essentially that's what they they say there is no real ideology that that sort of ideology is a myth that there's this kind of general principle that unites all these issue positions. And they, and they just get into a ton of examples. Like what, you know, what does your position on abortion have to do with higher taxes? Like those, those two things aren't connected. So how, how did we get there or your position on the war in Iraq or whatever it might be. And their argument is just, it's your party. It's, it's your tribe and that's what you're in and that's what the tribe stands for. And so that's what you stand for. And, uh, and that there's just a, a lack of real forethought. It's uh, and so that's what I'm trying to trying to get at. I, I think the other, you know, problem in that in the in the fourth box, the people who really do do a lot of thinking. Um, you know, it is hard to say, and you know, who am I to say or anybody else to say? Well, then you, you know, you're you're not voting how you should be voting. You know, I, I would never. Um, try to make that judgment, you know, uh, on somebody else, because people's motivations are so complicated and complex. And 
you know, maybe the, the example I was giving where somebody thought their way to, you know, climate change, well, maybe that's, it's not a super motivating issue for them. Maybe that there are other issues, right? So um, my, my idea is just like a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of research in, in the United States and the electorate in the United States that um, people hold positions that are at odds with their party. And so trying to, trying to figure out well, if you hold those positions, right, that would, would put you in this party, why are you voting for that party? And again, it might be a single issue that they are aligned with and that's all that matters and that makes sense. But for a lot of folks, it's just, they're, you know, they're not, they're not thinking. Um, but then for some folks, and again, I, I don't think it's probably too widespread, but for some folks, they might come to that issue position, but then they, they, try to talk themselves out of it because it leads them to an uncomfortable place where then you have to question everything and all your prior commitments and all your prior beliefs. And, and that's something that's very uncomfortable and people don't like to do. So two, three things I want to discuss again uh, out of this, but the first one is this, do you think then in that sense, the independent voter or the swing voter, as you, as you, you guys have a very specific word in America for the, the independent one. Do you think that that is kind of uh, uh, the folk theory of democracy voter? <laughs> Great question. There's a big debate on that. Um, I, I think for some of them, yes. And, and there, there is some research done that shows that some of these these people, um, they really do. It's, it's sort of, they'll either, we call it retrospective voting or prospective voting. So retrospective voting, they'll sort of look back at, a, 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 you know, the past four years of a presidential administration and they'll say, how did they do? And they give very accurate and factual uh, evaluations of, you know, how a past president has done. Because there's some pretty comical stuff that, you know, you if the, the, the unemployment rate goes down or something like that, and whatever party's in power, supporters of that party recognize that and say, yes, the unemployment rate went down, but members of the out party would be like, no, it's gone up and you know, completely at odds with the facts. But when you look at some of these independent voters, they tend to give very factual uh, you know, things that just basic, simple things like, you know, how, what has the unemployment rate gone up or down? Has inflation gone up or down? And they, they can give very accurate things, no matter what party is in power. And they also um, will tend to vote based on how that past party did or what they think, you know, the party's going to do in the future. But there are a lot of people who claim to be independent voters, too, that political scientists call them like leaners, that they really lean towards the Democrats or they lean towards the Republicans and they pretty much universally vote for that party. And so they, you know, they don't want to be, because it, it, also in the United States, it's like our politics is very tribal, but no one wants to admit it. And no one wants, no one of course wants to say that they're tribal, right? Everyone wants to believe that they thought their way into their political party. It's that other side that's really biased and really tribal. Um, and so, and it's, there's always been a history in the United States from the, from the beginning of, of uh, the, the founding of the nation that sort of party is bad and, uh, they used to call them factions and that they're biased and we should think of the national interest and not what's good just for your party or whatever. So I, I think generally, you know, even now where our party attachments are pretty strong, a lot of Americans like to consider themselves as independent, but 
in reality, a lot of them are not. And they, they, um, they vote one way or the other. But there is a small, I, I think, a small percentage of those independent folks who truly are independent and are willing to support either party, depending on you know, their evaluation of, of the issues and the state of the country at that time. So that, that is, I think, those folks do represent the ideal. And I think it would be better if more people acted like that. So another thought that came to my mind when you use the abortion example is, and this is again from my experience of campaigning, is that people have non-negotiables. Mm -hmm. Now their non-negotiables are not always consistent, but in a lot of cases they are. Like I lean very libertarian. There is no libertarian party in India is a different thing. But it's like if let's say if I was in America, I know the libertarian party in America is kind of cuckoo. They had a naked man running around in their... <laughs> I mean, uh, whatever. I mean, it's it's very embarrassing, but it is what it is. But I I, I would have, uh, you know, because I have some deep issues, let's say, on uh, like abortion with the Republican Party and its mindset. Like, I, And I don't understand. Like, I always say this word that is used in America, and I'm not saying it's in a pejorative way, but I'm just saying it in a very outsider observer way. Like, they have created these words to feel good about it. Like they say, someone is pro-life and someone is, uh, you know, pro-choice. Why can't the pro-choice people just say they're pro-abortion? I mean, I have very, I have no qualms in saying I'm pro-abortion up to a certain limit. Like the Indian law on abortion, for example, is so mature. Like, mm. you know, it. Uh, in fact, the current uh, BJP government uh, increased the limit from 18 weeks to 22 weeks uh, uh, in their first term. And uh, that too, the process is so mature, you have to do three consultations. And then once you do those consultations and counseling sessions, you're allowed to go for an abortion. And then obviously in, in, in the, the latter periods, it's only if the safety of the woman is at stake or something of that. Mm. It's like abortion is such an issue in America. It's like either mm. it's at at the starting point or uh, you know I've heard people say you can go the whole hog after nine up to nine months I mean mm. but my point is that you you used a great point because every human being has non-negotiable so they might agree on everything but there is that one point they cannot give up mm -hmm. and that one point triggers them so much that they are willing to forget everything and for in in some um in some cases it could be let's say um i don't know how to say this um in some cases it could be national security for some people they are very paranoid about national security especially in a country like india because uh there's a history in india right we got partitioned in 1947 mm -hmm. british india got partitioned into pakistan and india so security issues are very hyperactive in india we have a hostile neighborhood like america's neighbor is canada they don't do anything <laughs> but it, so basically, it's like, uh, I mean, Americans joke, right? It's like the 51st state or something. It's so mm -hmm. easy to go there. And and like as a person who has lived in both countries, they're really similar countries in many ways. I know they're different, but they're similar. But in India, you, you will find the average population being very sensitive to national security issues. And, and if a political outfit would deviate from that, they could give the Indian voter everything. But if they say national security, there's going to be a huge chunk in India. They will forget everything because that one issue supersedes everything else. So how does that, that the non-negotiable figure out in the calculation then? 
Yeah, you know, I think um, f- for me, if if this is a non-negotiable for them, it's a non-negotiable for them. I mean, pe- people are going to vote how they vote, and uh, democracy is messy, and you might not always agree with with the outcomes, uh, you know, of, of how people vote. But you, you know, you're trying to live together in a community and you're trying to respect each other's points of view. And even if you disagree and if you come out on the on the losing side of an issue, uh, you have to try to convince people otherwise. Right. And so I, you know, I think if if people, you know, as you said, if there's 100 issues and they're with you know, the Democratic Party on 99 of them, but there's this one issue that's the most important thing for them. And, you know, and and they're on with the Republican Party on that, and they vote for the Republican, that's that person's choice. And, you know, to vote that way. And I think, you know, and, and a lot of people do, I think a lot of Democrats make the argument in the United States that there are a lot of Republicans who are these single issue voters, you know, that, that, they vote on that abortion issue when they're actually hold like pretty liberal positions on a lot of other stuff. And they say, well, you're, you know, you're voting against your interests, but you know, I I mean, in a sense, I guess they might be voting against their economic interests if they were to get, you know, other, other things, but you know, you have also wealthy Democrats who vote for higher taxes and, you know, that might be against their economic interest, but it doesn't always boil down to economic interest for people. And so if they're super motivated by that issue, uh, you know, and that's how they're going to vote. We could disagree with how our fellow citizens vote, you know, but ultimately it's their choice and it's their choice to sort of prioritize those issues. You know, um, and I, what, what I'm trying, the argument I'm trying to make is, is different than that. It's just, if you've truly researched this issue and you really understand this issue and that's where you come down, then that's fine. And, and that's how you're going to vote, even if it is on this, you know, single particular issue. Uh, I just want to make sure that, that people actually research those issues and, and they're not just that they don't have misunderstanding about, about these issues, uh, and that they've actually looked into it and, you know, looked into all of these issues and sort of, sort of studied them. And, you know, uh, I, I do think as you were speaking about abortion, I, I do think that there, there is a lot of common ground on this. I mean, even if you, if you look at the polling in the, in the United States, I mean, most people agree that it should be legal, uh, up to a point, maybe around like the, you know, the first trimester, and then after that, health of the mother, you know, if there's a, a significant problem with the child, the child isn't going to survive birth or, you know, carrying this baby to term is going to be a, uh, detrimental to the mother's health. Like most people are there, but we just like, that's not, that's not where the debate seems to be, you know? Um, and so we have these really, and I think this is the, the problem with tribalism is that we, you know, um, Lily Mason has a book called Uncivil Agreement that like we agree on, Americans agree on a lot of stuff, but they're just fighting constantly. And, and they never, 
they never just lower the temperature and say, oh, okay, we can actually, yeah, I'm okay with that. Or I'm okay with that. And I think they're just there. We, we have this view of the other side that is that they're so bad and they're so evil and they're so misguided and they're so wrong that we cannot, we can't even sit at the table and talk to these folks. Uh, when you actually look at a lot of these issue positions, even something as contentious as abortion, and there's a lot of agreement, but, but the discussion is so driven by the people who are at the polls that it just gets really heated, you know? And um, so people sort of fall into that. And they're, there's, I think maybe they're afraid of like a slippery slope thing. Well, if we give into this, then they're going to take more because there's so, there's just no trust among different, you know, members of the different parties. And so they, you know, they, they fear that, well, if, if we make some kind of compromise then they're that side, we're, we're not, they're not going to live up to that compromise. They're just going to try to take more and more and more and more and more. And that's just where we're at politically now. And, and it's, it's problematic, but I, I wouldn't, I, I think like if someone wants to vote on that issue, it's not my position to tell them they can't or that they're wrong about it. As long as they put thought into it, you know, that that's, that's my point of view. Now, one more aspect of the book that I really enjoyed was uh, how how does one go about garnering information? To f- have an informed opinion, you have to study. And, uh, you know, you go into detail. I want to focus on one aspect of it. Uh, I, I'm born in 1981. Most of my life, I did not know there was an entity called a fact checker. Mm. And then suddenly out of the blue comes in this absurd concept of fact checking. It's like, uh, does the media realize that the mere existence of a fact checker says they failed? I don't Mm. think they realize that. It's a failure of media, right? Otherwise, why would we need fact checkers? There are Mm. editorials, there are editors, there there are multiple checks and balances that are ideally, technically, supposed to be there in the system itself the mere existence of a fact checker is the failure of the media and and mm-hmm. you know I, I have friends who are quite known anchors in india mainstream journalists in india and i always tell them like uh, have you guys ever introspected and off the record they will always say yes yes we have introspected we we agree <laughs> but they will never admit it on the record i ask them all the time they will never do it the problem is that in we live in the age of social media algorithmic realities right uh, no matter how much i try my twitter feed or twitter timeline is 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 curated in a certain way now there might be odd uh, people like me who consume way more content on the other side of the aisle politically than on my own side of the aisle but if i was to ask you how do i develop this mindset like julia also talks about the scout mindset right mm. and i think you uh, you take it to the next level and you say, okay, political animal, this is what you're supposed to do if you want to be a rational political animal. Julia just talks about the rational animal mm. in life, in general. You you take it and say, well, politics is very important and, and this is how you do it. So tell me, how, how am I supposed to be a good content consumer on social media or otherwise to be a responsible political citizen? Well, I think... Um... I, before I address, I'd like to, you know, you raise a really interesting point when you're talking about f- fact checkers and, you know, the failure of media. Um, when fact checking first started in the United States, 
it was really controversial because a lot of a lot of journalists were saying, well, this is this is not the role of, of a journalist. And because in the United States, there was this commitment to you know objectivity and basically like a he said, uh, he said, she said sort of reporting and fact checking was kind of breaking out of that mold and making judgments, you know, with, okay, he said, she said, but what she said might not be accurate. Right. And they, they would never do that. They would sort of just, he said, she said, leave it up to, um, you know, the consumer to determine that. And, you know, so that, that was a, a new thing that sort of started, I, I think, in the 90s, um, where it really started to pick up steam. But now it's become, you know, with, with online, it, it's become uh, so much more widespread, where, where a lot of different people have sort of jumped into the game. And it's, it's a really, it, now it's so hard, because, because everything goes viral so quickly. But uh, I, I think, you know, to your later question about how do we become good good consumers of information. It is, it is tough, but I think um, the traditional sources, at least, you know, in the United States, the, the traditional sources that uh, have a reputation, um, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, these are still, uh, they, they have their shortcomings and they've had their problems, um, but these are still good organizations that, as you mentioned, like they do have editors and fact checkers and things like that, uh, that at least they're, they have this sort of commitment to journalism and this is a, a profession as opposed to just somebody else posting something online. So I think your traditional news sources, your news wires, you can always start there. Um, as far as social media goes, I think what you mentioned about having a diverse, you know, on Twitter, following different people. So you're hearing different points of view, but uh, a lot of, one of the things that I always caution people about on, on social media, and this is something, you know, we, we were talking earlier about how we, how we practice these things and how difficult it is. It's one of the things that I constantly have to remind myself on, on Twitter is because so much of it is, so contentious and uh, just very a lot of anger and and resentment and hatred and um, that I I constantly have to remind myself that the the people who tend to be doing this stuff are more on the extremes and um, and that this is not what everybody thinks and and I think that is one of the one of the reasons why we become more more polarized is because in the United States our our news content has started to become more partisan and uh, with social media, the people, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's some ridiculously low percentage of people create some ridiculously large percentage of the content on social media. And yeah, it's single digit. It's yeah, single digit. It's crazy. And, uh, and that whole mass in the middle, they're, they're not really commenting on that. And so you just sort of have to remind yourself because there's a sort of bias in that, that this is what we're seeing and that this is how people must think. And I think that's driving a lot of the stereotypes about why we think the other party is so extreme or whatever. Uh, and so I, I just, I have to constantly remind myself that as I'm going through there, that this might not necessarily be the majority opinion. So I'm going to check polling on this issue or whatever and see what most, you know, most people think. 
but it's, it's good to expose yourself to other points of view. But I always tell people, don't pick the most strident voices, you know, try to find, because it's just going to anger you and frustrate you and, and make you dig in and try to defend your tribal instincts. And so it's always important to, when you are looking for media sources, find someone from the other side that you, that you think is reasonable, that you're not always going to agree with, but from time to time, you're going to say, no, I think that's a good point, or that's something for me to consider, or let me look into that. And there are those voices out there. You just have to find them. Uh, I, I think I made the mistake when I first got on social media following some of the most strident voices because I thought, well, you know, I need to listen to what other people are saying on the other side. But a lot of it, it they're just, you know, they're bomb throwers. They're, they're just trying to get clicks. They're trying to get followers. They're trying to get attention. And there's, there's not a whole, I, I wasn't learning anything, you know, fr from them. But then you find folks who, that yes, I, you know, I might not agree with them all the time, but I'm, but I've learned from them and they've helped me see things from a different perspective. Even if, even if you don't end up agreeing with it, you understand where they're coming from. Uh, but I think even more important than that, than the news media that you consume is having that in your personal life, you know, uh, having, trying to find people from, from different parties or who think differently from you that you have a personal relationship and that you're friends with that you can go to and, and have conversations because you have that personal connection there. And as a result of that, you, you, the conversations tend not to get so heated, you know, um, because there's something there beyond politics and they're, they're not just a caricature or a stereotype to you. And that, that can sort of help you. Um, unfortunately, I have people in my life that, that do that for me and I help do that for them. And, uh, and I, you know, I have changed on, on issues and I, I, I think I've moderated on a lot of things because of those personal conversations. And so it just, it, it takes some digging and it takes some finding and just try some people out. And if it's not working, just keep looking. And I, I think Julia had a, I can't remember the exact quote, but she, uh, I reference it in, in my book where she said, if, you know, when you're looking for someone on the other side, if you, you know, don't find someone right away, if you, if you find someone that's not making you think, then you got to find somebody else because it's just not, if you're constantly dismissing, dismissing and dismissing, that's not helping. You know, you have to find someone who is more reasonable than that. And, and that, that stuck with me and, and that's what I, what I try to do. Absolutely. And, and the only uh, way I have come to a point where uh, I have rationalized this position of fact checkers in my brain is that I always look at fact checkers like the James Randies mm. and Michael Shermer's of the news media. Mm. What James Randi and Michael Shermer did for in a very uh, large way to religion <laughs> hmm. uh, James Randi through his challenges, uh, challenging superstition. I think fact checkers are doing that version to an established media system that has almost become like a religious orthodoxy. Either either side of the aisle, I don't believe. Uh, like I, I, I've done monologues on this where I say, you know, neutrality is something that people came up with 
just to feel good about themselves i mean mm. the, if you were really an honest person you should start with the working assumption that you are biased mm. and now you're using different tools in your thinking arsenal to make sure that your bias is controlled as much as possible but unfortunately people actually lie to themselves which is uh, which included someone like me i used to lie to myself thinking that i was neutral until i realized that it new the concept itself is such a sham which has been sold to us by different kinds of people all over uh, the world and then i realized no i i which is why now i have a rule if i read an article on one subject which is from what is loosely called the side i am on i try to read two articles that are mm. opposed to it mm. i just i i push myself but one last thing before i wrap it up do you think social media has made us more irrational and let me explain where i'm coming from because otherwise you may not get what i'm saying look we were not supposed to opine so much mm. i mean mm. why do i have to have an opinion on everything is something i never understand like mm. t- today somebody is shouting on x so tomorrow somebody is shouting on y hey it today people are cephalologists tomorrow they are quantum mechanics experts the day after they have an opinion how the hell do you have so many opinions i, I struggle to have opinions the, the, the somebody asked me why did you start a podcast well so that i could ask questions i don't have opinions <laughs> it, it, it's just i mean it's like is social media making us a uh, even more irrational political animal in many ways by demand you know this this demand you rightfully said i think the number is around like 8% or something that actually create or generate the content and everybody else is just sitting back and consuming now these 8% or whatever and correct me if i'm wrong uh, on the number even the viewers can correct me in the comments but these these people where maybe you and i fall in that bracket i, I know you're very silent on twitter but i'm not i i i i do speak on twitter but it's almost as if you know every time there is a pressure on this this lot that something has happened you need followers open oh please mm. give an opinion and it just creates you into a useless creature and i don't know what else do i do where you're misguiding people you clearly don't have the expertise you should just shut up for a while right well i i do yeah i think everything is because it speeds everything up right and and so i do i i feel the same way uh how do you how do people have opinions on this stuff uh so quickly and uh and i i i think people um feel as though they have to i and you could sort of you know you you feel that pressure too it's it's you do have to kind of resist that pressure uh and that's one of the things that i think i have gotten much better at is saying i don't know i really don't know how i feel about this because i don't know enough about it and you know people always used to be because i you know have degrees in political science and because i'm really interested in politics people would always come to me and, and you know so what do you think about this and and what what happened and and i'm like and i used to feel as though i had to come up with something because well they're coming to me for my opinion and and then i i just started to realize like i i don't have to have an opinion and it's just, it's especially i think disconcerting for students you know uh because when you're at at the front of the classroom and they expect you to have an opinion on everything and know everything and it's like i don't know uh these are really complicated issues and 
And I think a lot of people get frustrated with that because we want things to be simple. We want things to be black and white. We want there to be good and there to be evil. And we want to have the answers and the solutions. But life is really complicated, um, especially when you're when you're studying human behavior. It's incredibly complicated. And I get so frustrated with the, you know, the instant analysis and the opinions, because then that's when sort of the, the tribalism kicks in and say, oh, okay, so this is our position. Well, okay. And then that's when it's so difficult to have conversations. It's difficult to compromise. It's difficult to like sort of think through these issues because people grasp on, they, they get so committed uh, to a particular opinion, even before they've really thought it through. And I, I think social media definitely is an accelerant for that. Uh, you know, the, the instant like buttons and retweeting and all of that sort of thing, uh, where before there, there used to be maybe more time to digest the news, um, maybe even in the format, you know, now people just sort of read headlines. Before, maybe it was we we would take the time more to, to read longer articles and things of that nature. Uh, I mean, the technology is what it is. And, and I hope that we'll get better at using it and understand the pitfalls. And I, and I think people are starting to realize that and hopefully we, we will adjust. Uh, but I, I do think I, I, for whatever reason, I do think it's like human nature just to feel as though we, we have to have an opinion and, uh, rather than just slow down. Um, and I wish we would just slow down, be a little bit more curious, be a, be a little bit more humble and be willing to have these conversations and, and not just feel as though we need to jump right in and plant our flag, wherever that may be. Because then once you do that, you know, as, as I write about, then it just, it distorts everything that, that comes afterwards. Cause once you plant that flag and it becomes part of your identity, it's going to warp how you look for information. It's going to warp how you evaluate information. It's going to warp how you remember information. It's going to warp how you perceive information. It's a like game over from, from that point. And if we could just take a step back and sort of let these things develop and let's find out more information, I, I think we'd be a lot better off for it. So, uh, I, I, I share your concern and your frustration um, for sure. You know, before we wrap up, like this one line where you say, you know, you have those sections on what can we do. And in one of the sections you say, when we evaluate political elections, we mm. should be magnanimous in victory and accepting of defeat. This is, I don't know if you realize the profundity of this thought because the bane of political analysis across the world it's because nobody does this. <laughs> nobody does this. You should just read political analysis after an election, the kind of rubbish that is peddled. Oh, mm -hmm. they lost because of this. They lost because of that. The, the utter arrogance of, hmm. you don't even know what your own house members are thinking. Hmm. And you have the arrogance. Like if I was to ask that person, I was like, do you know what your wife thinks or your husband thinks? Do you really know mm. that? And you have this level of arrogance. Like the, the, the lack of epistemic humility in political analysis across the globe right. is, is actually shocking because, and, and no wonder exit polls or opinion polls are failing at a, dis, you know, a disproportionately higher rate now mm. than, than they would because, 
you know the and the bias is built into the analysis hmm. right i am a bjp voter now let me go and look for people who will skew hmm. the poll in my favor i mean it's just hmm. it's just become so you know i just wanted to you know praise you for you know writing this one line which was so profound and and i don't think people realize it so so timothy once again thank you for writing this amazing book i thoroughly enjoyed and i and maybe i look forward to uh, reading your next book hopefully this is not going to be your only book well uh, i i greatly appreciate the support i'm i'm you know thrilled to that you read it and and, and that means a lot you know people write things to be read and so i i appreciate that you took the time to read it uh and you found it meaningful and so that that means an awful lot to me so i thank you and i thank you for giving me the opportunity um to speak to you it's been wonderful thank you so guys we'll wrap today's discussion up as always in the description of the podcast it doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio version or you're watching this on youtube you can go and follow timothy on social media and buy the book i will leave the link in the description itself i highly recommend this book uh like i said i i had you know the book the scout mindset by julia had you know had really impacted me and after a long time i read this book and this book really made me happy like most of you who follow this podcast know this is this is a podcast that does focus a lot on politics and the news cycle it at least 50% of the times when i generate content so for me books like these really help me because at least i would like to tell myself that uh, i am consciously trying to reduce uh, my political tribalism and con- generate content that it doesn't matter where you are politically you can come and listen to me you may disagree with me i'm not looking for agreement but all i want is mutual respect can can we build that society and this this book is a must read for you if you are someone who is in that business i highly recommend all of you to go and read this book and if you like what i do on the podcast please become a member or you know like this video subscribe to the channel or buy the merch i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye